Well, I'm going to tell you something this morning that you are likely never going to hear again from me. No. I said again. I will never say that in the first place. Um, you're not going to need your Bibles this morning, except at the end. Now listen, before... I know. Every week I get on you about bringing your Bibles. Every scripture that I'm going to mention this morning will be up on the screen. This is a nightmare for our visual team. This is a lot of scripture. And where we begin, you'll need your Bible. After that, we will return to it. The entire message this morning, I have two goals in mind, and I'm going to share these with you. First of all, we're starting a new series today called The Seven Sermons on the Cross. And this is the introduction series. My goal this morning is quite simply to help you understand how important it is that we study what Jesus said on the cross. And that's going to become clear to you this morning how difficult it was for Jesus to even speak from the cross, which puts a premium on what he says. It's urgent that we look at this, and it's urgent that we understand what he's saying. It's deep, deep theology, everything he says, and it has great and massive and broad implications to our lives. So I'm looking forward to the series. Today's the introduction to it. But the second goal, let me make clear by opening up to 1 Corinthians 11. And it's, by the way, the only scripture that I'm not going to put on the screen. So you do need to open to this one. Actually, towards the end, I will put this up on the screen. But I want you in your Bibles for just a minute um, together with me. The rest of the scripture will be behind me. And we begin actually where we were last week in the upper room with Jesus and his disciples. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 11 that Jesus taught this to him, which means that Paul didn't just hear about this. By the way, 1 Corinthians, most commentary writers agree, was written before any of the Gospels. So Paul, this is fresh information when Paul wrote this, inspired by God. And he says that Jesus himself taught him this. He didn't learn it from anybody else. And he records for us the words that Jesus uses. And we're going to look at one word that's repeated twice. Here's what he says, verse 24. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this, here's the word, in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The word remembrance, now I'm taking you to the Greek for a minute. Because it's very fascinating. The English is translated from the Greek here. And the word remembrance in the Greek means more than the way we use it. When we say to remember something, we, we, we use it in a way that says we're recalling an event or a person. Remember that picnic, our church picnic last year? We had a lot of fun. You're recalling something that occurred. But this word means more than that. It means to go back in your mind and recapture as much of the reality and the significance of an experience or an event that you possibly can. In short, in remembrance of me means to reenact the situation and relive it. 
Do you see how that's different than the way that we typically, we recall information. This word means to relive and reenact the experience. And what is it that we are to reenact for as the, the text says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, here's what we're doing. You're proclaiming, that word means to preach, you preach the Lord's death until he comes. When we approach this table at the end of this service, we're not just to bring back information. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for us. You're given a command. This is a command. I'm given a command. We are to reenact. We are to relive the death of Christ. Which is why I frequently say this is sober joy. It's joy because of the Maranatha. Until he comes, that's the Maranatha. But what, what are we to proclaim? His death. Friends, you have a job this morning. And I have a job this morning, and that is to relive the death of Christ, reenact it. And what I'm going to do, and this is my second goal this morning, what I'm doing in this introductory sermon is doing the best I can to help us reenact, relive, as if you were there when Christ was going through his final 15 hours until 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon when he died. And your job and my job is to reenact and relive that, to prepare us to do this, this Lord's table at the end of this morning. The Passover meal drew to a close, likely somewhere between 11 p.m. and midnight. And the custom was for the Jews at the end of a Passover meal, you end with singing Psalms 115 to 118, particularly the Hallel, the Psalm 118 hymn. You would end your Passover that way. We're likely going to do that this morning if time allows. It's the traditional way that you ended the Passover Seder. So they, they sang a hymn, the Bible says, and then they departed Jesus and 11 disciples because one of them, Judas, the betrayer, had left previous to this to go arrange his betrayal. And they left for the Mount of Olives. And Jesus probably led them on a route that would direct them through the city, through the southern end of the Temple Mount. And I want you to imagine, listen, this is how you relive. You're there. Have you ever been in a citywide celebration before? Maybe New Year's Eve in New York City. Or in my little town where I grew up, we called it Admiral Derider Day. We celebrated the admiral from Holland who founded our town. And it was a citywide, townwide celebration. The entire town was alive. I want you to think, I want you to imagine walking through Jerusalem. You're one of the 11 disciples. And according to Josephus, there's 2,700,000 Jews that would cram into that city, that walled city of Jerusalem during the Passover. Almost 3 million. And they're there to celebrate. They're there to celebrate one of their most, most joyous festivals that they had in their calendar. It's a city that's alive. It's a city that is up late into night. Fathers, listen, fathers, you're telling your children the stories and your children are clamoring. Can you tell us one more time? How did God deliver our forefathers and foremothers from Egypt? That's what all this is about. 
Lights are lit all over the city. It's exciting. People are up getting ready to even celebrate the following day's feast. And to walk through that city, to walk from where they believe the upper room is to the Mount of Olives, about a three-quarter mile walk, taking nearly 30 minutes to get there. And on their way, Matthew and Mark both tell us, shortly before midnight now, Thursday evening, Jesus tells them, he turns to his 11 disciples and he says, you're all going to desert me. And Peter, Peter's arguing very vocally, we'll never de desert you. I won't leave you. I will stay with you even if I have to die. And Jesus says, you're going to leave me. And they likely exited through the Shushan Gate. The Shushan Gate was the eastern gate, by the way. That's the gate that Jesus rode through on the donkey just days before. And they exit through this gate, by the way, the Muslims have taken that gate and they have boarded it up and they have built a cemetery right there because they don't want the Jewish Messiah coming back and they don't think that the Jewish Messiah could touch a cemetery. So they've boarded it up. But that's precisely what scripture says is that Jesus, when he does come back, will come through that gate right into the city. And they go through that gate and they go down the Kidron Valley, the slopes. And there at the deepest point of the valleys was called the Kidron Brook. The Kidron Brook by this point with what Josephus again tells us, 250,000 lambs being sacrificed and all that blood collected in bowls and thrown down the conduit behind the altar to flow under the walls of Jerusalem down into that brook. He says that the brook would turn red for days. So crossing this bloody spring swollen brook goes Jesus and his disciples up over to the Mount of Olives, which is covered with olive trees. And at the base of the Mount of Olives is what's called the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane meaning oil press. You see, they would shake the branches of these trees and collect the olives and bring them down the slopes to this press. And they would make from those olives cosmetics and cooking fuel and oil for their lamps. And every grain offering that they offered had to have olive oil that went with it. Olive oil had a lot of uses. And they went, they made their way into Gethsemane. By the way, the Bible says that during the last week of Jesus' life, every evening he went out into the Mount of Olives. They, they went to the Garden of Gethsemane. It wasn't infrequent. It was very common in the packed city of Jerusalem. You couldn't grow a garden in the middle of the city. So the inhabitants owned land and property outside the city on the lush, fertile slopes. And that would be their garden. And this is one of those gardens. And Jesus frequently made his way to this garden for a retreat. And it was nearing midnight when he leaves eight of his disciples. He takes Jesus, he takes John, and he takes James deeper into the garden. And then he leaves them there and he goes, what the Bible says, a stone's throw even deeper into the garden. And he begins to pray. And he begins to prepare for what was to come in just mere hours. The awful reality of bearing our sins upon his soul. 
And the Bible says that he was deeply distressed. You know what that means? It could be translated terrified surprise. Now, let's take a brief time out. Because I know as well as you know that while this stuff is informationally rich, it is interesting, it doesn't mean it's going to get to our hearts. So if you want it to get to your heart, you've got to get it to your heart. I don't have that power. So I want you to think this is God in flesh who is in terrified astonishment because he just looked into the cup that he was going to drink. The cup throughout Scripture is symbolic of God's wrath. He is looking into the cup of God's wrath that is about to be poured out on him. You see, fathers, if you go to the temple with your lamb that is going to be the sacrifice for yours and your family's sins, And you're going to cut the throat of that lamb with a knife that the priest gives you. That will be your job. But before the priest hands you that knife, he will instruct you, place your hands on the head of that lamb. And by doing that, you are symbolically taking your and your family's sins and transferring them to the head of that innocent, spotless animal. And you're taking the innocence of that animal and symbolically transferring it to you and your family so that you can now stand freely before God. And the father was about to take the sins of us. Can we be a little more personal? He's taking your sins and my sins. And he's about to put his hands on his son's head at noon on Friday and transferring all of our sins to his account. He's never touched sin. This is God. He's holy. And he sees the mammoth scope of our sins that he is going to drink to the last drop, and he is in terrified astonishment. In fact, so bad that Luke says he fell to his knees. Listen, this is God falling to his knees. Can you imagine God falling Period. God falling to his knees in terrified astonishment. Matthew writes, no, he dropped to his face and he began to bleed. Luke, the doctor says, and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Listen, this is a medically verifiable condition. You could get onto the internet and see pictures. Usually they're bleeding around the eyes where the capillaries are closed to the skin. It's when you have stress that is so acute, so strong that it can actually burst some of your capillaries and the blood leaks into your body and begins to come out your sweat pores. Hematridosis. He's bleeding drops of blood. They're falling to the ground from God's body in terrified astonishment. And he goes back three times. He sees his disciples. They're they're filled. They're overwhelmed, the text says, with sorrow. They finally get it. They finally get that Jesus really meant it when he said he's going to die. And as often is the case with us, when we are overwhelmed, our bodies shut down. They're sleeping. He goes the third time and he approaches his sleeping disciples. He says, it's time. And out of the darkness comes the clamor and the approaching light of of a mob 
with torches, led by the betrayer Judas. And it's here that the disciples, as Jesus predicted, they fled every single one of them. Not one of them stays with Jesus. They flee into the night. And the soldiers of the chief priests, they take Jesus and they they took him to Annas. Annas is the former high priest of Israel. You heard that, right? They they took him to Annas, the former high priest. He's he's no longer the high priest. His son-in-law Caiaphas is. But Annas had so much power that he's frequently still referred to as the high priest. And Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, they hated Jesus. You know why they hated Jesus? Well, I'll give you two reasons. There's more. Two of them are these. Jesus was a threat to their authority, their power, their control. But guess who owned the moneylenders that set up their stalls in the temple courts? And guess who owned the animal stalls? So dads, when you brought your lamb that you had selected four days prior to be sacrificed for your family's sins. And you brought that lamb, you had to get it inspected by one of the priests, and the priests you had to pay. And more often than not, this crooked organization said, your lamb fails, now you've got to buy one from the priests at an overinflated price. This is a money-making scheme. This is what Jesus drove out of the court of Gentiles, so that it would become again a house of prayer. They hated Jesus. He was threatening their sizable wealth and income. And Annas is the first to subject Jesus to what would be six to seven illegal trials, but he couldn't get Jesus to say anything incriminating. But that was only part of his ploy. The other part was he needed to give Caiaphas time to gather the Sanhedrin. There were 71 people in the Sanhedrin. They were the ruling body of the Jews, and they were about to conduct a trial, though it would be highly illegal. The Sanhedrin was a mostly corrupt body, always prone to political favors. And now it's well past midnight, and the Sanhedrin has gathered, Annas sends by his guards, Jesus to Caiaphas into his home. They believed that Annas' home and Caiaphas, they shared a common courtyard. Whether that's true or not, we don't know. But now in this raised platform all the way around in a semicircle sits these 71 men. And Jesus on the floor before them. And they begin to interrogate him, but it's, a, it's an illegal trial. Let me tell you why, and you can see them behind me. You see, tr- Jewish trials, by law, could never be conducted at night. And they always had to be conducted publicly. This was neither public, and it was at night. A conviction must have two credible witnesses. Any false witnesses had to be stoned. Well, they had two witnesses. They could not corroborate their story, and neither of them were stoned. Arguments to clear the person's name were to go first. See, the Jews had a great justice system. They wanted no one to be guilty if they were innocent. They took every measure they could to declare innocence before guilt. So the arguments to exonerate a person went first, followed by arguments of guilt and conviction. This went the other way. In fact, they never got to arguments of 
exoneration. A death conviction could not be pronounced until the next day after a full day of fasting and prayer was observed by the council. No trial could ever be held on the eve of a Passover or a Sabbath or in the home of the high priest. They broke every one of these to bring a false accusation against Jesus. And with their illegal conviction of blasphemy, they began to file out of that room. The guards began to beat Jesus. They found what they believed to be Caiaphas's home today. And in the excavation of that home, they have found a dungeon, which is little more than a pit, into the ground that you could lower somebody into. Likely, Jesus was beaten, lowered into that pit. And then when daybreak came around 5.30 or 6, in order to preserve some semblance of, of legality, they reconvened the entire Sanhedrin, brought Jesus up out of that dungeon right before them again, and this time pronounced the death sentence. Rome didn't give the Jews permission to carry out the death penalty, only on one occasion. And that was if a Gentile had entered the temple beyond the court of Gentiles. If a Gentile did that, they could be stoned on the spot. That's the only permission that Rome had given to them. Other than that, you had to get the, you had to get the Roman governor's permission for execution. He had to decide. His name was Pilate, the Roman governor. And he was there during the festival. He was there to ensure civil peace. You've got almost 3 million Jews. You don't want civil unrest. You don't want the beginnings of rebellion, which is commonly happening when you're all there and some seditionists are seated among you. So Pilate is there to ensure civil peace. And notice now, John says, that the Sanhedrin, the council of the people, they wouldn't enter Pilate's palace. There's a reason for this. And I want you to think of this. They had a two-hour slot of time to sacrifice the lambs for the Passover. We're told by Josephus that they sacrificed nearly 250,000 lambs every Passover. You can't do that in a two-hour window one day. And what they had developed, according to John MacArthur and others, and I think this makes a lot of sense, is that the Judean Jews, the Jews around Jerusalem, they celebrated the Passover on Friday, while the Galilean Jews, that would be Jesus and all but Judas and his disciples, celebrated the Passover on Thursday of that year. And so you've got all of these, the Sanhedrin mainly made up of Judean Jews who were going to be celebrating the Passover later that day on Friday, who, if by their own rules, not scripture, by their own rules, if they touch anything of a Gentile, they are rendered ceremonially unclean, meaning that they couldn't take their lamb into the temple to be sacrificed. So they would not t go into uh, Pilate's palace. They did not want to become spiritually unclean. And so here's Pilate now forced at 5.30 to 6 in the morning to come out to them. Pilate hated the Jews. Pilate despised this rural little outpost of Jerusalem. He didn't want to be there, and you'll see in a minute that he wasn't doing a very good job. 
And so he sent him to Herod. He didn't want responsibility for executing Jesus. He saw nothing wrong with him. He didn't believe the trumped up charges. So he sent Jesus to Herod, the Jewish king. This is the same Herod that had John the Baptist beheaded, who was also in town for the festival. And Herod starts to ask. He, he was eagerly eager to meet Jesus. He begins to ask him questions and Jesus wouldn't speak to him. And Herod begins to ask him to demonstrate a miracle and Jesus wouldn't do one. And so after a while, he gave up and the soldiers of Herod mocked Jesus and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate comes back out, according to John, still found nothing wrong with Jesus, tries to set him free. But the Jewish crowd, the Sanhedrin, the soldiers are, are pressuring him to give Jesus a death sentence. Now, you might be wondering, this is Pilate. He's the governor. He's got the power of Rome behind him. How could the Jews have this kind of influence over him? And then all of a sudden you learn in history that Pilate, when he came to Jerusalem four years before this, hating the Jews, said that I'm going to put them under my thumb and I'm going to make them cower before me. And it led into a rebellion among the Jews where they were willing to give up their lives. They would not listen to Pilate. They sent a letter to the emperor. The emperor heard this and he, he sent a letter back to Pilate and said, Pilate, don't you remember the Pax Romana, Roman peace? We're supposed to preserve the peace and you are inciting civil unrest for ridiculous reasons. Don't do that again. Well, Pilate did it again. And again, the Jews sent now an emissary to Rome with what Pilate was doing. And the Roman emperor now was related to Pilate, said, enough is enough. If you do this again, not only will you lose your governorship, you will be killed. Do you see now the pressure politically that, that Pilate was under? If the Jews send another letter to the Roman emperor, it's the end of not only my power here, it's the end of me in all likelihood. And so as they're shouting, crucify him, crucify him, finally, Pilate tries to appease them. And John says he sent Jesus out to be flogged. He gave him over to a whole battalion. You know how many soldiers are in a whole Roman battalion? 600. Now time out for a second. You're to relive and reenact. I'm trying to give you as close to historically accurate events of the last 15 hours of Christ's life that I can. So get into the story. Do you know likely how these Roman soldiers looked at this pretend king named Jesus, who, according to the Jews, was leading a rebellion against Rome, them? They didn't want to be in Jerusalem. They hated Jerusalem. This was a little hole in the wall. This was a podunk town. They hated and despised being sent to Jerusalem to serve Rome. And you've got 600 soldiers around this mock pretend king who's going to lead the Jews in freedom from Rome. And they are sent to flog him. Can you imagine the intensity they're going to put into this? You see, flogging could only occur for men. And it was always done naked and publicly. It was to present and to inflict the maximum amount of pain that could happen and humiliation without dying. Frequently, 
they did die. The kidneys would be lacerated. But here's how they would do it. They would take this, uh, this whip with a handle and at the end of the strands tie pieces of rock and bone and glass and metal. And one soldier would be on one side as he was tied to an upright stake so that it pulled his back taut. And one soldier on the right swinging with his right and one soldier on the left swinging with his left and they would take the strands of the whip and it would curl around the rib cage and the shoulders of the victim and they would literally rip it through the body. This is not like you see in a cowboy movie with a whip. This was meant to lay open your body in dark red rows of broken flesh. Bloodied and torn, 39 lashes. They believe the 40th usually killed somebody. Bloodied and torn, Jesus was brought back to Pilate, his clothes put back on him. And still the Jews cried for crucifixion. And Pilate's own wife came to him and said, I've had a dream, don't kill this man. Yet the political pressure was too great. And Pilate finally caved into the pressure of the Jews. And he ordered Jesus to be taken away and crucified, though he knew he was innocent. And again, Matthew says, the 600 soldiers took him, the whole battalion, and they stripped off the clothes, off of his congealing body, ripping the clothes from the scabs that were beginning to form. And they put onto him a purple robe of royalty, and they took what was indigenous to that area, a thorn plant, and put it into a crown with one and a half to two inch long thorns. I've got one in my office. I should have brought it down. Needle sharp. It jammed it onto his head and put a reed staff into his hand to humiliate this pretend king. And then they took the staff out of his hand and spitting on him, they hit him over the head with a reed staff, driving undoubtedly those thorns into his skull. And at the end of that time, they began to lead him away to be crucified. John says he bore his own cross, but yet at some point... Simon the Cyrene was called from the crowd. It seems clear that Jesus could not bear that upright post all the way to the site of crucifixion. You see, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. The Persians did. The Romans perfected it. And what they did was they always crucified somebody in the most public place possible because this was how they maintained the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You want to rebel against Rome, then this is your future. And it was designed to be the maximum, most lingering pain possible in an execution. In fact, the word that we have, excruciating, the X means in Latin from, excruciate means cross, it means from the cross. The cross, the crucifixion was excruciating. And it was made, the cross was, of two parts. It had the vertical and the horizontal beams. The horizontal was called the patibulum, and it was tied to the shoulders of Jesus, and he was made to carry his own execution device to the site where he would be killed. It weighed about 75 to 125 pounds. Can you imagine? Now listen, you're there now. You're in the crowd, and you're seeing your Lord walk between the rows, carrying this wooden railroad tie, basically. 
on the back that is flayed open from the 39 scourges. Blood loss, shock, been up all night, been beaten, humiliated, not fed, undoubtedly. His body is ready to drop, and it does seem that it does drop, and Simon does seem to be drafted into service to carry that patibulum. And when they got to the site of execution, Roman law demanded that the victim would be offered a mixture of wine and myrrh. It's like taking three Tylenol. It's a mild analgesic painkiller. But Jesus refused it. He was thrown down upon the upright post called the stipes, which the patibulum had now been attached to. And then they took nail spikes, picture railroad spikes, but much thinner and a little bit longer, tapered to an almost needle-like end, five to seven inches long. And they took these spikes, they first took one of his hands and one of his arms and put it out along the patibulum and drove the nail through, not the palm. The palm medically cannot hold the weight of a human body. Through the wrist to lacerate and sever and crush the ulnar and the median nerves that run right through our wrists. And what it does, it leaves your hand in a claw-like gesture, unable to even open the fingers. This happens all the time, even today, with wrist injuries, as you can see behind me. Time out for a second. Can you see the hand of God, the hands of God? Nerves crushed in a claw that cannot straighten. You're there. You're reliving this. This is what happens to crucified victims. And then one foot was placed over the other and another spike was driven right through them both. This time, however, it severs the lateral and the perineal nerves. They knew what they were doing. The Romans perfected this. And now he's fixed to the cross by three nails. They lift the cross up and often what would happen is it slides into the hole in the rock with a thud. It usually dislocates the shoulders. Psalm 22, all my joints are out of place, Jesus prophesied. And it's at nine o'clock that they lifted him into place. And people begin to parade by below him and they're mocking him. And up above his head, Pilate had ordered a sign to be placed saying, This is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. You know, the Sanhedrin came to Pilate. And they said, We don't like that sign. We want you to change it. We want it to say, He said, I am the king of the Jews. But Pilate told them, What I have written, I have written. That was Pilate's dig back to the Jews. And when you look behind me and you read this prophetic passage from Psalm 22 and you see that every single one of the statements that were made hundreds and hundreds of years before were fulfilled in this incident, you begin to see that Jesus absolutely, utterly, clearly knew what was coming. None of this caught him by surprise. God went to the cross knowing full well what he was going to experience. In all seven statements that we're going to study in this series that Jesus spoke on the cross would have provoked waves of nausea and pain. Here's why. You see, the crucified victim, the chest muscles are paralyzed on the cross. 
The intercoastal muscles, they're unable to act. What that means is this. You can inhale air when you're on the cross. You can't exhale it. I know it seems like it would be the other way around. It's not. In order to exhale air, or you asphyxiate to death, it's like drowning. In order to speak and force air through your vocal cords, the victim, Jesus, would have had to pull up on his wrists and push up on his feet. That's the only way you can relax these muscles to get the air out of your lungs. Otherwise, you get carbon monoxide buildup and you die. If that's true, which it is medically, then it puts a premium on every one of the statements that Jesus spoke from the cross. All of them are able to be spoken in one breath. That's why they're short. And if this is so important that we hear what he is about to speak, and if it requires that much pain to fire through his neuronal system, if it requires that, then it's pretty much important that we put a premium and understand what he's saying. That's why we're doing this series. But his agony was only beginning for at noon. From noon till three, darkness covered the land, Mark says. God pours out his wrath on his son, which should have been poured out on us for all the sins that we have committed. It's poured out on Jesus for three hours. Listen, our, the amount of our sins is so enormous that it's being poured out from God's own hand. God's own hand, the Father's hands, are on the Son's head for three hours, transferring our sins to His account. God's account, who's never committed sin, never tasted sin, all of our sins are being transferred to His account until shortly before 3 o'clock, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The cup was drained. And God, the Father who cannot be in fellowship with sin, had to turn His back on His own Son, having never experienced that before, having always for eternity lived in face-to-face -face intimacy, according to John 1.1. Never before has He experienced disfellowship with the Father. For the first time ever, Jesus cries out in agony, Why have you forsaken me? And moments later, He spoke again, saying, I am thirsty John says when he received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Now I want you to know what's happening nearby in the temple. Because now the Judean Jews who are celebrating their Passover Friday, Jesus and his and the Galilean Jews celebrated it Thursday. Now the Judean Jews are celebrating it Friday. And it was between 2.30 and 3 that the priests would blow their silver trumpets, which was the signal for the Father's who were bringing their lambs to the temple to be sacrificed for their sins and their family's sins, that was a signal to cut the throat of your lamb. And likely this coincided, it is finished at the same time those trumpets began to blare. And we see the awful irony that no longer can the blood of a lamb be sufficient. The lamb of God himself has shed his blood. And Luke says, finally, Jesus prayed one final prayer to his father and died. Can you picture 
as you relive this and reenact this, can you picture the face of God drawing slack into death and watching his chin fall to his chest in death? This is God. This is God who dies for us. The Romans knew what they were doing. Pilate received from the Sanhedrin a request. Can you please hasten the death of Jesus and the two prisoners on either side? There are three of them crucified. Because our Sabbath is coming, we want their bodies off the cross. So Pilate gives the order to the soldiers and they go to perform what's called crucifracture. They take a sledgehammer and they break the legs of the crucified victim so that they can no longer push up and no longer relax those muscles, no longer exhale, and they die of carbon monoxide buildup within minutes. They do that to the two prisoners. They get to Jesus and they find that he's dead, but they've got to verify this or their own lives are on the line. So they take a long Roman legionnaire's spear, which has an 18 to 24-inch head that tapers to a needle-like point, and they thrust it through his rib cage into his lung, and out flows blood and water, which to every Roman who perfected the art of crucifixion knew that that person, that was a sign of death. Either from cardiac rupture, or cardiorespiratory failure. Let me, listen, let me tell you what Dr. Truman Davis writes. Carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs on, in crucifixion and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart, which is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. Outflows blood and water. Jesus was confirmed dead. Can you picture that spear going through the side of God? Puncturing his lungs. Flowing out what was in his own body for us. But God demonstrates, Paul wrote, his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So we're about to approach the table. I've done the very best I know how to do to help you reenact and relive the death of Christ. And as we approach this table and as the men are going to be coming down in a moment, they're going to be bringing out to you the bread which symbolizes his broken body, the juice which symbolizes his shed blood for you. When you hold those elements, you're commanded, I'm commanded to reenact God loves you that much. He loves you that much. How precious we are to him. And what a response needs to be generated in us. God, you've got it all. If you sent your only begotten son, your most precious son, and gave it all to us, then why would we not respond and say, God, you've got my entire life. You've got my home. You've got my body. 
got my health, my gifts, my time, my money, my skills. You've got it all. That's worship. That's the response of reenacting and reliving the death of Christ. Listen, if you're here this morning and you've never come to Jesus in faith, you've never, listen, you've never thrown yourself down at the base of that cross while the blood is dripping off of our Savior, and you've never gone to Him and looked up at that dead body of God and Jesus and said, you love me that much, you can have my life, and I know I need your blood to forgive my sins. There's no way to heaven. There's no way to God without it. If you've not yet put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation, then today's your day. Today, Hebrews says, is the day of salvation. Don't wait. But unless you've done that, this table is closed to you. This is only for those who have put their faith in Jesus. It won't make sense to you without it. Brothers and sisters, if you have, then let this table reinvigorate you to give everything to Jesus who gave everything to you. As you hold that broken body emblem and that shed blood emblem, let that get to your soul as you reenact and say, I will give you everything, God, and I won't leave here until you've got it. Will the men come down and who are going to be serving? Let me pray while the worship team comes down as well. Lord, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for demonstrating your love for us, your kindness to us. Lord, we are undeserving. We were at war with you, not one of us. We might think that we wouldn't have been yelling out, crucify you, but Lord, our unsaved hearts were yelling that out. We didn't want anything to do with you until your grace turned us towards you. What A.W. Tozer calls prevenient grace. God, thank you for that grace. Lord, may we not yell crucify. May we yell you are our Lord and our Savior. And we will serve you with everything we have for the rest of our lives. May we encourage one another to that end in Jesus' name.